Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. I am a part of the Amazon affiliate program. It's very exciting. So what that means is if you go to heyhumanpodcast.com on that homepage, there's an Amazon link at the top of the page. If you click on that link and do your Amazon shopping, as you normally would, we all do Amazon shopping, well, most of us, um, a little bit kicks back toward Hey Human Podcast as far, far as the affiliate goes. Um, so, so far, uh, I've raised $6.06. It's very exciting. <laughs> Every little bit helps support Hey Human. So this is my uh, fundraising drive. If you shop at Amazon, please go to heyhumanpodcast.com and click on the Amazon uh, banner at the top of the homepage and do your shopping just like normal. And also, of course, on the heyhumanpodcast.com on the links page, every episode that comes out, I do a bunch of links for that episode. And it's generally stuff that my guests and I have talked about. It might be movies we referenced or books or maybe a book they've written or, you know, who knows, or just research or history. Um, I try and pick some fun things and put about, you know, anywhere from five to ten things up there. So definitely check out the links page. And uh, yeah, what else? Social media, Susan Ruthism is my Twitter. Uh, and on Instagram as well, Susan Ruthism. That's R-U-T-H-I-S-M. So Susan Ruthism, as in the Tao of Susan Ruth. Um, and then Hey Human has a Hey Human podcast Instagram and a Hey Human podcast Facebook is on Facebook as well, obviously. Um, yeah, so today, uh, my guest, well, it really wasn't today, it was back in September. Uh, I, or no, gosh, it might have been, let's see, what's the month before September, August? It might have been August that I spoke with uh, this guest. His name is Brian Swice. He is at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, where he is finishing up a dual program of PhD, MD. He's very bright. Uh, His field is neuroscience. And we had a really cool and interesting conversation. Um, I'm a big fan of anything brain. I'm fascinated by the brain. I read tons of articles about neuroscience and the brain and all the things that we are capable of or may someday be capable of. Um, It just fascinates me. My favorite neuroscientist is David Eagleman. And in fact, on that links page, um, I have some some David Eagleman books and and his PBS series is on the links page. Um, But also, uh, so Brian... He he has a an advi- he has two advisors, one of which David Reddish. I sat down and talked with when I I went to visit actually Minneapolis, and I got to talk to David Reddish. I read his book, uh, The Mind Within the Brain, and it's really good. And even if you're not, I mean, some of it was kind of technical, but he wrote it in such a way that I feel like um, even people that aren't really into the technical thing could totally understand it. Um, but I didn't actually interview David. I wish I did, because he was really interesting as well. But Brian and I talked about all sorts of things. Brian's research, um, he uh, his, in, in the facility, he's got mice, and he trains the mice in these mazes and um, studies how they make their choices, and it all correlates 
uh, with his research about how the brain uh, makes its decisions and how those decisions may in fact lead to addictions. I'm probably kind of screwing up exactly what it is he does, but that's the beauty of listening to the podcast. You get to hear it for yourself out of uh, his own mouth because uh, we Skyped or FaceTimed or whatever we did. And um, I was I just had a blast talking to him. Such an interesting field, really interesting guy. And he was very kind. He invited me to come out to Minneapolis to see the research and to go into... Uh, I had to hold a human brain in my hand. Holy cow. That may be one of the coolest moments of my life. I held a human brain in my hand and the brainstem, and I got to look at it all and marvel at it all, and it was the most beautiful, incredible experience. There's really nothing like it. I'm sure some of you are like, oh my god, that's insane. But it wasn't. It was It was so, so cool. I. It's hard to describe exactly the feeling when you're holding a brain in your hand, but it was awe-inspiring. All I could think of is like, this little thing is capable of so much, and and who was this person, and what did they do, and when you know they shuffled off their mortal coil, did they take all their experiences and all their knowledge and all their stuff with them, and or is it all inside this, you know, little tiny three or four pound you know, thing, what, what? And then all the connections from the brainstem and I'm uh, not the brainstem, sorry, the, um, what do you call it? Spinal cord. That's what I meant to say a minute ago, the spinal cord. I mean, the brainstem was there too. It was the spinal cord that was all pretty and laid out. It looks like some sort of serpentine octopus thing. I don't know, but just, just awe-inspiring, honestly. It's really it's phenomenal that we exist and that we are so complicated and, and again, intricate and just beautiful and lovely. Um, I don't take it for granted, that's for sure. It's, it was a really neat trip, and I got to uh, meet some of Brian's mice. That was cool. And uh, I even got to do a slice myself, which was really neat, uh, on the brain of the mouse who nobly gave his life for research. Um, pretty awesome stuff. I'm probably going to get a letter after I just said that from somebody who is all for animals. And let me tell you, there's a poster that I saw as I was walking through the halls there um, at the lab, and it was a bunch of mice, and they were dressed up like superheroes. And I have to tell you, um, the experience, the reverence that uh, these these, uh, educators and students and everybody there in the labs have for these animals is extraordinary. They, they're they not blithe about it. It's not willy-nilly. Um, they really respect the service. I, I think that's the best word to use, the service that these mice um, provide. Uh, they are in service. They are of service. And they really do help mankind. The research is going to help people. And, you know, you can get into the ethics and the philosophies and all that stuff. And I do think about it, and you know, animals have rights. I do believe that. Uh, but boy, these these mice are are well taken care of, and really revered and respected. And in fact, there was a moment um, when they were anesthetizing the mouse, and I was fascinated by it. And um, so I was watching as this mouse was going under, and uh, Brian and his assistant 
you know, they turned away and out of respect, which I understood, but I was so fascinated. And, I, and there was this moment where I was like, am I doing something wrong? Cause I'm watching this mouse go under, but you know, my childlike curiosity perhaps, or maybe my science curiosity, I don't know what it was, but I wanted to experience the whole thing. And I didn't think any, I wasn't trying to be disrespectful to the mouse by any means. Um, but I was certainly taken by the whole experience. So yeah, anyway, Brian, super interesting guy. His research is fascinating. And we talk about all sorts of things so that the brain is capable of. And they're, it's, an, it's a never-ending field, I suppose. I mean, they're discovering things every day. And it's a complex <laughs> it's a complex thing, the brain. And who knows? Maybe within my own lifetime, we won't even figure it all out. Maybe it's going to take a few lifetimes. Maybe we never will. Um, that's how extraordinary it is. So without further ado, here we go, uh, Brian Swice and the brain. Hello, Brian Swice. Hi, how's it going? Um, it's going well. Thanks for being on Hey Human. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I put a, a post on Facebook asking if anyone knew a neuroscientist and a neuro, or a neurosurgeon and uh, one of our, our mutual friends, I guess we both know uh-huh. Amanda, uh, suggested you. And here you are. You are very gracious. Thank you for agreeing yeah. to talk with me. No, I mean, anytime I can talk about science, right? I mean, that's probably my favorite thing to do. Yes, well, that's good. Science is very interesting. So you, you're you in the MD and PhD program up there in Minnesota. So you're, right. you're going for the double whammy. You're an underachiever, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I moved from Chicago to Minnesota uh, in the Twin Cities, and um, it's a really special program where they let you kind of train between two fields. So I get to get a little bit of the best of both worlds, training to become a physician, and then at the same time, training to become a scientist. So why did you want to do that? Why, did, why was that the option you... Yeah, I mean, um, you know, in medical school, I, I take it at most medical schools, and especially at the U of M, They'll, they'll let you supplement your education with something extra. Um, and I thought I wanted to become a doctor, but in college when I did research, I fell in love with how science worked, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I didn't realize what science was about was, can you design an experiment? Can you do it elegant enough with the technology you have available to you to make statements that no one else could ever make before? Um, and can you contribute your work to the body of science that has been growing since? Um, and I didn't know that's how science was like. And so I fell in love with that and thought I didn't want to go to medical school. Um, but I kept my options open and I kept doing research while also seeing patients in the hospital, shadowing doctors and getting involved with research in the hospital. And then I realized you can combine both of these fields. And there are programs that let you become a full-fledged scientist while also becoming a doctor. So you can help your patients in new ways you couldn't before. Right. Where medical school doesn't necessarily train you to do that. You have to help people with what we have. And you're not necessarily trained to change medicine. Was it always so, the brain for you? Um, I, basically, my first year in college, I started doing research on stress and anxiety um, and memory and PTSD. And I fell in love with brain research because it's this mysterious frontier that we're just starting to scratch now. Um, so that was, that was the most exciting thing to me. And it still is to this day. So let's talk about uh, your research. What it, what it, like what's going to be your thesis for your doctorate? What is the stuff that really intrigues you? I know we talked a little bit about it on the phone, 
but mm-hmm. you know they weren't in on the conversation so <laughs> yeah yeah um so most of my work now uh, it still has a component of the work i used to do um it's still related to stress in some shape or form um, but now my thesis work is more trying to understand how how the mind works when you make decisions right and how that could be influenced by a bunch of different um external factors mm-hmm. uh, like stressors or um the way we might be biased or wired to think about information when we decide what we should and shouldn't do but most of my work is really trying to understand what happens when that starts to break down mm-hmm. and what happens when that starts to malfunction specifically in the context of addiction um where not necessarily you know everyone is necessarily thinking about addiction the same way where we tend to think of it as a problem with perhaps the way you make decisions right and the way your brain processes maybe what you should and shouldn't do or how you decide uh if this is more valuable to you versus something else so that's all my that's my thesis work now is understanding how addiction changes the way we make decisions and then ways we can try and intervene and and try and fix that so when you're writing a thesis like that i mean it's an interesting it's an interesting question because many people look at addiction as a disease right but as we talked about on the phone there's still that moment where you make that choice right. like if you know let's say that there are alcoholics in your family or drug addicts in your family you could probably guess that your propensity for addiction is going to be higher even on that first decision so let's talk about that a little bit yeah there's a yeah there's a bunch of talking points there um so you brought up right people some people think addiction is a disease, um, and I think the the other side of that argument or that divide is people say, "Well, no, it's a choice, right? It's not a disease. It's um, it's a moral dilemma." And people have, you know, this goes back to before science uh, was, especially brain science, started emerging. That these people have uh, moral problems, right? Or these people have other social or family problems, and it's not a disease. So really what that comes down to um and we can chat about this and I'm you know curious to hear your thoughts is this is true for any kind of mental health disorder is at what point does this argument start to head towards absolving the person of their responsibility right or not blaming someone or trying to understand and not get so mad at someone for x y or z whether it's addiction or whether it's depression or whether it's schizophrenia or we can start getting into the criminal mind of people um with psychopathy mm-hmm. right <clears throat> i think that's like where that that argument stems from um <clears throat> but uh <clears throat> there's a lot there's a lot there to unpack so especially now with decision making science evolving mm-hmm. we're now really starting to get a a handle on how complex the way the brain makes decisions um and so if you really think about what <clears throat> different drugs of abuse or different behaviors are doing to your beha- to to the way you make to the way you behave um and we are starting to get a sense of what it's actually changing in your brain um i think the argument starts to crumble a little bit where you have these sorts of experiences that lead up to addiction um changing the fundamental machinery your brain uses when making decisions right and i think to separate it is it a disease or is it a choice i think it starts to become one and the same where the way you make decisions is being altered right like the fundamental uh tools your brain uses to decide what you should and shouldn't do that is being changed um or at least that that could be one thing happening in addiction so it's like these two different arguments or these two sides start to start to go away because it's it's kind of one and the same and that's still a separate issue from 
who's held responsible. I'm curious, uh, um, are those sort of decisions made in the same area of the brain or are different areas being lit up when you're trying to make those choices? Yeah, I think this is where the field is going now, and this is particularly um, one of the, the two laboratories I work in. So I work in a laboratory that is um, really trying to understand how addiction changes your brain, mm. right? Not necessarily the behaviors it's changing and not necessarily what these parts of the brain are responsible for, but just what is the actual hardcore machinery that's changing. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lab I work in. And mm -hmm. I guess the buzzword of that laboratory is plasticity, right? We're really trying to understand what is plastic in the brain, um, especially after exposure to different drugs of abuse. And then there's a different lab I work in that studies what are all the different parts of your brain that are involved in the decision-making process? Um, and it's turning out to be a lot more complicated than, than we think, right? So there are different parts of the brain, specifically part of the frontal lobe and part of the hippocampus, that are involved in planning out what kind of actions you want to choose between. And this is what we think of when we typically think of chewing over a decision we're thinking about, mm -hmm. where you're deliberating and you're planning and you're actually accessing memories you've had and your current mood and you're deciding what might life be like if I choose this option. Um, and that is, that is just one circuit or a number of circuits within the brain voting on a decision you're about to make. But we, as we're finding out more and more, there are other systems that we use when we make decisions where some aren't necessarily that you know, uh, carefully thought through or there's less of a conscious deliberation going on mm -hmm. where we think of habit might be playing a role in how we make decisions. Um, you recognize a situation and then your body kind of unleashes this pre-programmed, heavily practiced ritual or behavior. And that, that, that definitely involves circuits that are mutually exclusive or overlapping with the same parts of the brain that you use when you plan and actually think through your options. And so these are different parts of the brain. Um, and that is yet a, you know, a separate system that's removed from the way we make decisions that are based on emotion. Um, we might get into a certain state where we get hungry or we feel fear and that unleashes some sort of um, ready-to-go response that is still independent from habit and independent from planning and comparing future scenarios. Um, and these are all different parts of our brain all trying to vote in on what we should be doing. Well, it's an interesting thought, I think, before you, let's say, take a first hit of, let's pick something that's not necessarily hyper-addictive like a meth or something, but something that's lesser, I don't know, pot or alcohol or whatever. Um, there's that, that sounds like an argument for saying like, you're already habitual, you're already, you're, you're just the way we're set up as humans. Like we get up every morning, most of us brush our teeth, we have our morning habits. Oh, I can't wake up till I have my first cup of coffee. You're already a habitual creature. And so adding that other little piece of the pie in there isn't, it's it's sort of like you've already lost before you've begun. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, even uh, even something as simple as like your morning routines when you get up. I think if you really break down step by step all the pieces of information that come into your senses before you decide to act, um, mm -hmm. I think it's a it's it's a it's a mixed bag of a bunch of different uh, um, things that your your brain might be focusing on. Right? I mean, you might actually when you're lying in bed trying to decide to get up, you might be deliberating about, mm, if I do this, this might happen. If I do this, this might happen. Right. And then you're, you're weighing the, the, the value of those different consequences. Um, and you might decide not to get up. Um, or you might have some sort of emotional reaction to the sound of the alarm clock beeping. And that leaves a feeling of uh, disgust in your, <laughs> in, you know, bad taste in your mouth that you don't want to get up for the morning. And then you 
choose to select the action of not getting up. So at the surface of it, it looks like the exact same behavior. Um, but there could be completely different reasons for why you decide to do things that you're motivated to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as now we're getting uh, more and more advanced tools to be able to look into the brain and to listen to what's going on, we can see these different parts of the brain either imagining future consequences and then you deciding which one of these is more valuable or different parts of the brain that have a gut reaction to the sound of the alarm clock going off and then you decide not to get up. Mm -hmm. And these are completely different reasons why you do the same thing. So you can imagine that if these drugs of abuse or these different predispositions we have that are different between individuals, um, you can imagine that they could be changing these different, very discrete different parts of the brain and they could be causing some sort of dysfunction in the way we make decisions. And they could be happening for completely different reasons, but on the surface, they all look like the same type of addict, right? Um, And so I think we're just starting to understand that there's a lot more heterogeneity in um, a lot of mental health disorders. And I think we're just getting the tools now to figure out that you can have a hundred different unique versions of why someone has some sort of mental health disorder, but on the surface, they all look the same or they all present the same. So it's my understanding that when a person does something pleasurable that their pleasure center releases dopamine and that could be anything drugs running you know seeing your friends whatever i don't know whatever it is so does there come a point where in just anticipation will then release that and so that 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 high comes just thinking about what you're gonna do and maybe that is that what makes addiction so complicated because then when they're actually in the activity, it's never it's never going to replace that first feeling. Or am I just yeah, making things um, up in my head? <laughs> no, these are I mean these are all valid questions. These are all things that like everyone likes to talk about. Um, so I just came back from uh, a week long conference. I flew out to Boston and then I traveled to Maine, and it was a week long conference just on it was on catecholamines or dopamine and adrenaline. Um, and it was the world's greatest minds and people who are studying that right now. Most of these people weren't physicians. They were, they were scientists. Um, and they were all there studying dopamine and all the different things it does or doesn't do. Mm-hmm. Or these, these old stories or these old dogmas of it playing a role in pleasure or reward. And given the tools we have now, what do we know more about the role of dopamine and its interaction with either addiction or other diseases where we know dopamine plays a role, like Parkinson's and movement disorders. Um, So it's tough to put a singular role on what dopamine does or how addiction and the highs are related to to the role of dopamine. Um, But I think um, there's a lot of people in the field who believe that dopamine isn't just about pleasure or, you know, the release you get when when you feel a high or something like that. But rather, um, there's definitely a group of people that and there's a long-standing body of scientific literature that suggests that dopamine is certainly involved in things that we do that motivate us. Um, but I think more specifically, it's, and you mentioned this anticipation, which I think is key to what a lot of the field starts to think about what dopamine is involved in. Um, but rather, if you, if you come across something that is rewarding or something that is some form of punishment, and it's something that is unexpected, um, there's there's a lot of research that shows that that's when you see this big burst in dopamine, mm. right? And it's something it's some sort of signal that marks this transition from a state that you were at a second ago to now this new state that is more valuable than where you just were a second ago. And there's a lot of research that shows that the strength of this dopamine burst or release 
goes hand in hand with this kind of uh, degree of unexpected reward, right? Mm -hmm. Or unexpected um, something that would that is pleasurable. Um, and so, a lot of people have studied like what's the purpose of this signal, and if you think about it, <clears throat> what dopamine is actually doing in the brain is it's it's releasing its chemicals in certain parts of the brain that are involved in motivated behavior, um, and people have certainly studied it plays a role in changing the way the brain is wired, right? It's something something needs to be learned here is what people have come to come to, I guess, as a whole, decide that this is one of the roles dopamine plays. Mm -hmm. Is there something unique happening in this environment, whether it's pleasurable or not? It was unexpected, and there's some piece of information that you should learn now, the next time you're back in this scenario. Oh, interesting. So I like to think about it as, you know, if you go to a, a, a soda machine, and you put in money, and you get two cans of pop instead of one, Yay! Right? You, you get a reward that was unexpected. Right. And if you're measuring dopamine right at that moment, you'd see this huge burst in dopamine. Um, whereas if you have been getting, you know, Dr. Pepper your whole life and you put in money and you get the can of pop you expect, there's no burst of dopamine. It's still a reward and it's still pleasurable and you like it. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you've been doing this for so long, there might not be a burst of dopamine. So it's like the, there's something new to learn here so that the next time you come back into this vending machine room and there's three vending machines to choose from, you're going to choose the one that gave you two instead of one last time. Right. And there's something about that burst of dopamine that is a signature of there's something you should learn here. Um, so, <clears throat> on the other hand, if you put in your money and it eats your money and you don't get any cans of pop, right? There's something unexpected that's happened, but you've transitioned into a value state that's less than what you expected. And so, there's actually a big silencing of dopamine that happens right at that point. It's like it can switch in both directions. And so, there is something still valuable to learn here that you shouldn't choose that again next time around. So, now when you think of anything you do that leads to something pleasurable, and this is now getting into what we think is going on with addiction, um, whether it's the actions or the rituals that led up to you taking this hit of drug, um, there's something pleasurable that happens, and you know it's this huge, huge high that releases dopamine in a fashion that wants you to learn that whatever you did to get this, right, you should do that again. <clears throat> and unlike natural rewards like food or um, like getting your can of pop, if you do this repeatedly over and over and over again, that dopamine signal will eventually um, not occur anymore because you have nothing new to expect. Right? The first time you get your can of pop, sure, that dopamine signal goes crazy, but after you've been doing this for years and years, you fully expect what's about to happen, and so there is no extra dopamine burst. There's nothing new to learn here. Is this why when, let's like, say, I take a road trip to somewhere I've never been before and it seems interminable getting there, but then the next time I go there, it just doesn't feel like it takes as long. Or even coming back, it seems like it goes a lot faster, you know? It's yeah, the, the passage of time. Um, that's not necessarily my field, but there's a lot of people that study, I guess, your perception of time, mm -hmm. especially as it relates to um, experience and reward and motivation. Um, that There's certainly something there. Um, but I guess, I guess the point that I was trying to make is now when you bring drugs of abuse into the mix, like we know cocaine or heroin or alcohol or tobacco um, we're starting to figure out more of this now, but um, in some shape or form, it does enhance this release of dopamine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way cocaine works is it blocks the parts of the the parts of uh, neurons that basically clean up dopamine after it's been released. And if you block that, you have this kind of unnatural increase in dopamine than you normally would without cocaine. So I guess the theory, and this is one of my advisors, uh, David Reddish. I guess he, you know he published a paper in 2004 that basically suggested. If you're artificially enhancing dopamine release, 
even this is after your hundredth hit of cocaine, right? You never give your body a chance to never have a, a zero dopamine release. So if you think about it, you've done this over and over again. You're expecting this reward. There's nothing new to learn here. But this drug is artificially releasing dopamine more than it should. Mm-hmm. Your body always thinks that there's something new to learn here. And so you're constantly reinforcing this behavior because do- these dopamine signals are constantly more and more and more spiraling to have you reinforce that behavior that led to drug-seeking behavior. This is going to sound um, like a really stupid question probably, but does that what, you know, I know that cocaine, for example, doesn't that burst blood vessels in the brain or something? So is that what, is it just being overworked? I really don't know enough about how the brain functions, yeah. how it necrotizes I mean, or whatever, you know? Yeah, so this is, I think, um, it's, it's a good point to bring up is um, we can we can talk about cocaine's actions on one aspect of behavior of the brain, like the high you feel. Mm-hmm. But then we can talk about cocaine's actions on the rest of your body, like your heart rate, or its role in constricting blood vessels. Um, and then we can also talk about cocaine's uh, role in um, how kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, I, it, it's an actual, it's a stimulant. So yeah. the, locom- the locomotor effect it has, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's all these different things that cocaine could be doing, right? And I think we're uh, again we're kind of really just starting to figure out what is it actually doing to physiology, your heart rate and your blood pressure. What is it doing to the high you feel, that hedonic pleasure? What is it doing to that stimulant effect? And especially after repeated uh, repeated doses of this or repeated uh, hits of this drug, you might see no changes in in one of those measures. The high might be getting less and less. And so this is why people might be craving more and more of it. But the stimulant effect it has on your body might be getting stronger and stronger. So we, we use these words like sensitization or desensitized or tolerance. And I think depending on what aspect of the body that you're actually measuring, I think all these things could be different. What it's doing to blood vessels in the brain or damaging tissue, I think that is maybe um, less of the area we're focused in. We're trying to understand how it's changing the way you decide what's of value to you. Mm-hmm. Um, what it's actually having to, mm-hmm. to damaging tissue, I'm sure that there are things that it's doing. Like We know that re- wherever you're injecting cocaine repeatedly on the skin or IV or whatever it might be, or if you're snorting it or taking it, it definitely could be damaging tissue right there locally on the spot yeah. and yeah. causing scarring and things like that. Um, I don't know if there's a whole lot on what it's actually doing to blood flow in the brain and how that's contributing to all of this. I think that's a whole other level of a whole factor that could be changing everything else. And I assume you're doing this on mice or you're following around cocaine addicts. You're not just posting in like the, the student union, hey, need some folks to do some coke. <laughs> Come on right. down. Yeah. And so, I mean, be a line, working, I'm sure. But... <laughs> working at a large university like the University of Minnesota, um, and it's especially with my combined program, um, most of my work are in laboratory animals, and we work with the vets here at the U of M to make sure that these animals are taken well care of. Um, and that's the way people have been studying addiction for a while, is in rats and mice. You can have them work for a drug, and they will give themselves drugs of abuse. Um, and then, because I'm also in the medical field, we also recruit studies where we have either recovering, current, or former addicts that come in. Mm-hmm. And we can get a history of them. Uh, we can put them through tests, just like the same tests we're putting through these animals. Um, but I mean, this is the divide between science and medicine, especially in basic science with animals. We can really control what's going on, and in the human world, um, everyone's coming with their own baggage of experience, um, their own different genetic differences, um, comorbidities, different drugs of abuse all mixed in. And so it's tough to kind of balance the two. And I think that's the whole point of being in this combined program 
is I'm trying to take whatever we're learning in animals and try and bring it into the, the hospital or things we're learning from people and then bringing them back into the laboratory so we can design our experiments better. Why so mice of, and not pigs? Um, so I think this is the, <clears throat> I guess this is the story with any kind of animal research is, is the animal you're working with a, a good model of what's happening in the humans, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then there's pros and cons and there's limitations to what you can do. So, you know, people are still studying fruit flies and there's a bunch of things you can do to the brain of a fruit fly with all these tools and you can breed up colonies of these in generations and have them reproduce like crazy. And that's an advantage you don't have in monkeys, for example, which look very much like humans. You can train a monkey to do very sophisticated things, but you know, you're working with one or two monkeys for two years and you can't do these experiments like you can in fruit flies. And so there's a whole spectrum mm. of animals you can choose from. Do they, do they get close to the behavior you're interested in? Do, they, do their nervous system look like humans? Um, is there a lot of similarities in the behaviors and the way the brain works? And then the tools that you can use, um, how well developed are they? And so a lot of people um, like to stick within the mammalian system. Mm -hmm. And rats and mice, I think, have historically mm -hmm. been used for a lot of studies. You can, you can build off the work of your predecessors and know what these behaviors look like. And then the tools that we're developing, for me at least, I'm a little biased, but working in the mouse world, there's... Um, there's an insane amount of cutting-edge neuroscience tools that we can have to study the brain, which shares a lot of similarities with the human brain. Um, and their behaviors, we're just starting to understand, are very similar, especially when it comes to decision-making. Um, as far as pigs go, like I know, for example, in the, cardi in the cardiology field, sure. right, <clears throat> um, people who are studying the heart use pigs regularly. Mm -hmm. But I think for behavior, I don't think it's something that people spend a lot of time doing because you can't necessarily build mazes and run a hundred animals in a day in a with, with a pig setting um i'm not necessarily sure if their behaviors are well characterized like a mouse or a rat is i feel like a so, pig is is with its higher intelligence than a mouse no offense mice everywhere but uh, that yeah. they would be the pigs like no not right now i'm reading you know <laughs> you'd have more of a blowback yeah i've never worked with pigs but um uh, i can tell you uh especially working in the decision making field um these animals, I, f I would like to say, are a lot more cognitive than we give them credit. The um, mice are? Working with rats and mice, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's a paper that came out from uh, the Reddish Lab uh, about a couple summers ago. And um, it sparked up a lot of media interest, but it was not necessarily an addiction, but it was just understanding how the brain makes decisions, especially if you make a decision that you end up realizing wasn't in your best interest. Mm -hmm. And it was, you just Google the words rat and regret, it was this big study on what might be going on in the brain when we experience something like regret, Ooh, and we don't really have the, and we don't really have the tools in any other species, let alone uh, humans, to be able to go into the brain and see the brain reflect on what could have happened if I did this other thing. Um, so it's it's tools like this that um, I think the rodent uh, world I think um, is giving us a lot of insight that we didn't think a second ago, uh, you know, could have been possible in rats and mice, but. Uh, but like I said, and I, and I work in a, another laboratory with Mark Thomas and at the University of Minnesota. And we again, we use these sophisticated tools we have in, in mice to be able to understand how the brain is plastic. Mm -hmm. And I think all of these things have been optimized to work in mice, but we're always trying to figure out how this relates to what's going on in the patients. Where do you think the research will head? Does it mean that you're sitting in an office with a patient who's having addiction problems and you can say, okay, you're making... A decision based on this, you know, I mean, where, what is the point, I guess? Yeah. Um, so 
I was kind of I was mentioning a, a bit ago how the way people have been studying addiction for a while has been getting animals to give themselves drugs of abuse. And you can watch their behavior change, and then you can look into the brain of a rat or a mouse and figure out what's changing between these animals that got cocaine versus heroin versus no drugs at all. And then try and figure out, are these changes responsible for some of these behaviors? Let's try and fix these changes in the brain of a rat or a mouse, and then see if we can develop therapies that work in people. Mm-hmm. And this could be anything. This could be behavioral therapies that are definitely targeting these parts of the brain. Right? Are there different behavioral therapies or regimens you can put a patient through that will cause this connection between the hippocampus and the amygdala to change in a way that will actually maybe reverse some of these problems, right? So it gives us a, it gives us a part of the brain to look at and monitor in people or a biomarker to follow based on testing it in the laboratory and know that if we change this and somehow get it to change in people, this could help this problem or prevent relapse. Um, or can we develop different pharmaceuticals that can more specifically target these connections in the brain, right? And I think the pharmaceutical industry, um, while doesn't, and we can talk a lot about that, about how I feel, how it may or may not be addressing what might be really going on in psychiatric disorders. If we, if we learn more about very specific things happening in the brain, you can develop drug targets that can go directly at those connections in the brain to try and fix those things very specifically. But until we know what they are, I think, um, the drug world is kind of a sledgehammer approach to covering the whole brain in some sort of chemical that um, may help for reasons that we may or may not know exactly what's causing it. But I think what is going on now, um, and it's not necessarily there for addiction yet, but it's happening in depression and OCD and people with movement disorders like Parkinson's or tremors, is there are very invasive approaches for extreme conditions where neurosurgeons are going into the brain and they're putting devices into very specific parts of the brain. And you can stimulate or try and change those connections to try and help um, ameliorate tremors or movement disorders. You or mean de- a computer or situation? Yeah. So, um, so at the University of Minnesota, Gerald Vitek, he's one of my uh, advisors, and he studies Parkinson's. But they open up the skull and they lower a little metal wire or an electrode that can record brain activity, but then at the same time send a little electrical impulses and, and zap parts of the brain. Um, just like you would have a pacemaker on your chest that sure. would send wire to the heart, mm-hmm. that pacemaker in the chest of some patients with tremors or Parkinson's disease, the wire will instead go up the neck into the skull all under the skin. And again, these are very invasive approaches, but what this allows you is very specific directed control over um, parts of the brain that might be malfunctioning. Um, so that's widely used for people with tremors who, who can't control their movements and you can send in electrical signals into the brain in only very specific parts of the brain and correct those behaviors. Is that something they do manually or is that an automatic response the the, the wire says, oh, something's going on, let's fix it? Yeah, so um, this is like a, where a whole body of uh, research is, is trying to figure out. So these little devices, um, Medtronic, uh, St. Jude, Boston Scientific, which I'm realizing Minnesota is a headquarters for a lot of these medical device companies. Um, they'll have these they'll have these electronic devices with a battery pack um, under the skin, just like a normal pacemaker. Um, and then it can send, and you can program these devices to send specific patterns of signals, maybe only certain times throughout the day at this frequency or this pattern um, to correct some of these problems in the brain. But I think you, you nailed the important point, which is, is this happening kind of all the time continuously, or is it waiting for a bad signal to come in and intervene? And people are trying to, um, study this a lot more closely. We, we call it this sort of 
online, on-demand, a sort of closed-loop system mm -hmm. that waits for a bad signal to come in before it intervenes, where you only get a sort of treatment you need. So people are studying this for seizures, for example, people with epilepsy. Can you record mm -hmm. a seizure that's about to come up, and then can you intervene and maybe zap parts of the brain to stop this from ever growing and spreading? Like um, the way so we people... know an earthquake's about to happen or something. Right. Yeah. So there's uh, Esther Crook-Magnanson. She's a... Um, a relatively new faculty at the University of Minnesota, and she's developing um, very sophisticated tools to study this and detect this. Again, starting in mice, but eventually working our way into patients. Um, this is happening for people with depression. Uh, Helen Mayberg from Emory University is uh, stimulating parts of the brain in people with depression where medication doesn't help them. Um, and again, it's there's two ways to look at this. You can go very invasive and try and dive into the brain and figure out is there a way that if these people couldn't get better through medication or through behavioral therapy, but if you add this extra little kick to it, you can maybe pull someone out of this dark spot? Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of her line of research. And there are some people, um, Brian Strange, which I think is in Spain, he's doing this for OCD, where you're stimulating parts of the brain to maybe suppress some of these uh, obsessive compulsions. That Please you tell me he's a doctor because Dr. Strange is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, he's, he's, a, he's a neurologist. That's um, awesome. I think he's, a, he's an MD-PhD himself. Um, that's what I love about being at these big universities is these people come and visit and give talks and we get to take them out to lunch and talk about career and how their research in animals or people are eventually ma making its way into the hospital. So we're, I don't think addiction is there yet, um, whether or not we want to invasively go into parts of the brain, especially if we're talking about things that involve choice and the very parts of the brain that we're trying to fix are the parts of the brain you use when you imagine what life might be like if you do something, mm -hmm. right? I think we're trying to really carefully understand how that works and maybe develop therapies that can repair that, but we're not necessarily trying to go into the brain and change what you decide what you should and shouldn't be doing, right? Um, you talked about um, the, the fact that, you know, for example, with depression, and then there's particular drugs that are chosen to be used for depression, and they're not going to work on 100% of the people. And so I have two questions about that. One, it seems for a lot of um, people with PTSD, which is sort of other little part of depression, I don't know, they're kind of related, kind of not. Um, and marijuana seems to really help with that. So do you have research around that? And then the other question I had, um, based on what you just said, was, I mean, you take a brain. Everybody's brain is different. But is it? I mean, how different are all the brains? So then if it's like trying to teach a third-grade classroom, not every child is going to learn the same. And yet we have this systemic, you know, specific way of teaching, which, of course, is obviously not working so great in America, at least. So what do you do when you have all these brains? You can't yeah, give think, Bob and Susie the same drug if their brain is different. Yeah, or no, I think I think you're um, basically, uh, and the deeper and deeper I get into this, and the the more and more I get into my research, the more complicated it becomes, right? Mm -hmm. Not just how complicated the brain is in one person, but then how different it is between people. Um, so it's super complicated, and this is why I'm spending the rest of my career to figuring out how this is working. Um, it's endlessly fascinating too, which is yeah. Okay. So okay, so which which point do we want to tackle first? So I guess this kind of one size fits all sort of idea, um, or uh, I think I don't know why I don't know, but I think mental health in particular um, is particularly situated in a really tough spot because the way we diagnose problems and the way we treat them, I think um, at this point in a lot of psychiatry 
or psychology isn't really speaking to what could be going on in the brain. Like the diagnoses for depression, um, according to the, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual for Mental Health Disorders, um, it's basically a, a checklist of nine items. And if you meet five out of those nine, you get diagnosed with major depressive disorder, right? And you can have you can have 100 people that all meet those same five out of nine criteria, or you can have 100 people that have a mix and match <laughs> criteria. But I think uh, it gets to your point about the kind of degree of heterogeneity. Um, and so you have all these people that get diagnosed with major depressive disorder um, or any other psychiatric disorder because they meet these criteria. Um, insurance companies now can get billed for getting the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And then they, they're now candidates for getting um, you know, certain uh, pharmacotherapies or behavioral therapies. And they get maybe uh, their course of uh, antidepressant drugs like SSRIs. And I think you can have 100 people that all meet those same five out of nine criteria, and they could all maybe be having 100 unique reasons why they are experiencing the same looking depression on the outside. Right. Um, this is, I mean, this is true, like you said, for education and, and schooling, I think everyone's brain is different. So this is kind of the one, I guess, part one of the problem is the way we're diagnosing things um, might not necessarily be speaking to the way the brain's malfunctioning. And this is unique to mental health. If you have someone coming into your office with high blood pressure and you have 100 people with high blood pressure, there could be 10 to 15 different unique reasons that are causing it, right? We learned this in medical school. You do a workup, you do your diagnostics, and you figure out the underlying cause. And you're not basing a diagnosis based on a symptom. You're understanding the malfunction of it. Is it something to do with the way the heart's pumping blood? Is it something to do with the volume in your blood? Is it something to do with your blood vessels? Um, and so... I think with mental health, we make diagnoses based on a constellation of symptoms and not its underlying cause. And that can be a problem for trying to understand how to treat them. Um, but what we do know is it's actually a good tool to consistently assess people from across cultures and across time. Right? The one thing that that does allow is the DSM can reliably, um, across cultures and across time and um, different places in the world, it can reliably categorize people into at least same similar clumps of disorders that we can treat with certain things we know that can kind of help better for this group versus that group. So it's, it's very valuable in that sense. Mm -hmm. But then the way you try and treat things also, for example, with antidepressant medications, don't necessarily speak to the underlying disorder either. So it's like two sides of the problem. The way we're diagnosing things and the way we're treating things in mental health, both aren't speaking the language of the brain. Um, especially the more and more that I'm in this world of decision-making research, the more I realize that it's a very complicated process that's happening super fast when information is being processed in your brain and you're deciding what you're motivated to do. Um, everything from you know, the, the image of a family member that is sitting on your desk that hits your eyes to processing what those colors look like to then retrieving memories in your brain about experiences you had with that family member, mm -hmm. to then deciding what kind of mood this stirs up in you, to then deciding if this is motivated enough for you to want to see them again. Mm -hmm. right? That is a complicated process that happens over the course of milliseconds. And there could be some sort of malfunction at any point along those ways. Um, and you can have people that um, have problems with emotion processing that could be for completely different reasons. Um, so when you diagnose them in kind of a catch-all umbrella way, and then when you treat them with antidepressants um, that are basically covering your whole brain in some sort of chemical soup for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, it works for some people, and it doesn't for other people. And when it does work, we kind of have an idea of why it's working, but it's, again, it's not speaking at 
the level of the brain, which is processing information super fast in real time. Um, so that's why a lot of our interventions that we work on now are going into the brain right at the moment of processing information, and can we tweak and dial up or dial down how much that information can get through? Because um, I think now we're just starting to understand the language of the brain and how it speaks. Um, so wait, are you <coughs> saying that, that, that in the future that there might be some sort of wire they stick in the brain that will stop people from being addictive? Um, I think that's one sort of therapy avenue that people are studying. For example, like this is what is being done in some patients with OCD, right? It's uh, stimulation that's, and same thing for depression, it's stimulation that might be changing the processing of emotion or motivated com compulsions or behaviors in real time. Um, and, I, and like I said, it's, it's careful because we're not trying to get into science fiction of mind control. I think we're just trying to dissect this ball of yarn of how the brain really works. So once we can really understand how it works in a rat or a mouse by turning up and down signals in the brain that change cravings for drug, I think it allows us to understand are all of these therapies that we currently have in patients, are they really targeting those parts of the brain? And can mm -hmm. we follow that and watch that in people? Um, so if we looked at the brain, let's say, as a, a map of streets, for okay. example, and the blood's flowing along and all the little places it's going, and suddenly it hits a roadblock, it's going to turn around and go in another direction and not go to this, the part of town that is addiction town or whatever. That's kind of the, the layman's way to describe it? That's one way to think about it, right? And there could be um, the how many lanes are on each of those streets, right? Mm. It could be either increasing or decreasing how much information can get through, right? And that's kind of one way we think about addiction is there's experiences you go through, and in one specific highway, it might be constricting how many lanes are on that road, and information might not be able to get through that particular highway as fast as it normally would. And so now you have behaviors that are being generated because other parts of the brain are driving this, maybe more or less than this one part of the brain would be influencing it. Mm -hmm. um, so then there are sorts of exper there are experiments that we're running right now where we go into the brain and we're not trying to change an animal's mind for him, right? We're not trying to control his thoughts, but maybe right before he goes to bed, we get to increase or decrease the, the number of lanes on this highway so that information can either get through more quickly or information might not be able to get across as strongly. So this, again, has a direct relevance to what we can do in the hospital, where you're not trying to put devices in that person's head to try and change the way they think, but can you do treatments that change how many lanes are on this particular road versus that road, so that when they come across a decision that they have to make, they now process it in a different balance, mm -hmm. right? Where the value of a craving now is weighed more against the value of consequences that you're thinking about. Right. Um, that's pretty. That, that's at the core of my thesis work right now. It's shifting the balance from the other way to the, yeah. Right, and you can do that through <laughs> invasive brain surgery procedures, or you can do this through very directed behavioral therapies that can now get your body and brain primed to use one highway maybe more than another. Sure. Well, you talk about science fiction, but all the things you're saying, I think, well, could we, and I actually had a conversation with Kate O'Neill uh, for the podcast. She's a tech humanist, and mm -hmm. she and I spoke about a future where perhaps you could manipulate reward center and, and, and maybe take out people's proclivity for fear, for example, and build a super soldier by saying, oh my gosh, I'm scared. No, I'm not. I'm fine. Go in. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's certainly an application, you know, military application, I suppose. I know that's not your research. I know that's not what you do, but it's, it's fun to think about. Yeah. So uh, there's two sides of that, right? I mean, <clears throat> how much 
how much can we learn more about just human nature and behavior by understanding and doing experiments like that um, and help people. And this being in two different laboratories, it's, it's nice because I get to see um, a bunch of different ways that our work can be applied. So in this decision-making group of researchers that I work with, we are studying fear and anxiety and threat um, and, and how it relates to decision-making. Um, and again, I think because the progress we're making in the field of decision-making in general is growing, I think we can now talk about a number of different mental health disorders from a decision-making perspective, right? I, I don't think the field necessarily thinks about anxiety or fear from a decision-making perspective, where you're actually, the way that your brain imagines future consequences could be distorted or changed if it's in the face of threat. Um, and again, are you relying on a planning system or something that's more emotionally driven that doesn't involve you actually picturing and putting yourself in the shoes of, you know, 10 minutes down the road, what might happen? You might be making decisions with that lens, or you might be making decisions without that lens. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are doing research on anxiety and decision-making. Um, <clears throat> so going back to your question about uh, ways that this can be used, I guess, to make people fearless, um, <laughs> again, it, it comes down to we're trying to understand how the brain works and how these, how these fundamentals or these phenomenon about conscious decision-making or um, human behavior, like how that really, really works, we're just starting to understand it, um, let alone be able to to use it in ways that you're describing. Um, yeah. I it's, love science fiction, so. <laughs> we're, we're not that far off from it, and I think the things that we're doing now, it's mind-blowing, the tools that we have. And again, these are a lot of things they don't necessarily teach me in medical school, right? Um, it's, I think where, where neuroscience, basic neuroscience research is, is like 50 years ahead of where the clinical world is um, really? in terms of understanding how the brain works. And, and I think they're slowly drifting together um, because when I work with the psychiatrists in the hospital versus the neurologists in the hospital versus the brain surgeons, I think there are people that try and overlap and bring these fields together, but there are also three completely different fields. The way psychiatrists work and psychologists work and neurologists and brain surgeons, I think they all have their different tools and their different, um, I guess, lineage of how they're taught medicine. And I think it, these are all worlds separate from where neuroscience is. Well, and they're super specific. It's like you take your car into the mechanic, and there's going to be one diagnostic person. There's going to be one person that totally understands engines. There's going to be another guy that's like, oh, your paint's chipping. Let's fix that. And mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, when there's... we were on the phone, you had mentioned, and I, I don't know if you can talk about it yet, but there was something that you were pretty excited about, but I... You, you're not there yet, right? You can't talk about it yet? Well, no, it's just, uh, this is like the, the work in progress with where our experiments are, right? Um, uh, and I think um, this is exciting for any kind of new frontier of science or where our experiments are leading us. Um, but uh, we, we touched about it a little bit throughout this conversation, just the tools we have and the things that we're doing to rewire parts of the brain and either take an animal that has gone through um, months and months of drug addiction and then can we pinpoint and target parts of the brain and rewire things as if the animal looked like what he did on day one before ever experiencing drugs, right? Um, so these are the experiments that we have that are a work in progress. Um, and it's not to say that we're trying to erase addiction or erase memories, but can we rewire parts of the brain that are really critical for those decisions you might be making when you relapse? And can we override and kind of reset that back to normal? Um, so this is these experiments that are a work in progress right now. Um, and then on top of it, I think all of this doesn't really matter much unless you can um, 
observe the behavior of the individual of the animal and can it tell you something about a problem of addiction that I think the field has been struggling with for a while in people but I think until recently we haven't really gotten there in rats and mice mm -hmm. which is this whole idea of deciding between what you should and shouldn't do I think we talked about this a little bit and that's yeah. kind of the core of my research is are there are we getting closer to understanding in, in an animal brain how the decision of what you want but know better is sometimes at conflict with each other um, I think people have been studying decision-making for a while in, in rats and mice, but I don't think they've been able to necessarily get to that sort of statement of, like, you can study craving in an animal, you can study an animal working for drugs more than it would work for food, or you can, under, you can understand how an animal might be working for drugs in the face of something threatening or painful. Mm -hmm. And all of these are really getting at problems with, um, you know, impulsive decisions. But I think there's a slight difference with trying to understand... You can never ask an animal, do you know that you shouldn't have done that when it tried to work for drugs or whatever it might be? Um, and we think we're getting closer to be, being able to model that decision in an animal. Is this difference between should and shouldn't, or the devil on your shoulder versus the angel on your shoulder. And where in the brain, in different parts of the brain, are those uh, you know, calculations you're using to value what you want? Where on the other hand, another part of your brain might be valuing what you should actually better be spending your time doing. We think we're getting close to that let alone how this changes with drugs of abuse. And that, that's the core of my, my dissertation. So if somebody had brain damage in the region of that pleasure center, do they just, do they stop doing things like eating and, and things that are just basic enjoyment, sex and, you know, wine or? Yeah, um, so I think it's, uh, it's messy, right? Because if, if people have brain damage, if people have a stroke or they get in an accident, Right? I think a lot of these uh, injuries to the brain, they're not obeying anatomy, right? I think you can, have, you can have loss of blood flow to an area of the brain because there's a blood clot, and it could be damaging all sorts of parts of, the, of that area of the brain, whether it's maybe um, that entire part of the brain is just now completely dead, or maybe parts of it are dead while other pieces of information flowing into it are still alive. So I think this is, this is where science used to be, right? Where people would have strokes or brain damage and then they would find something missing in their behavior or something lacking. Mm -hmm. And then they would then turn that into understanding what the brain does. Right? There's that classic experiment or that classic study from, I think it was like the 1920s or so, uh, Phineas Gage, where this guy was working on a railroad and a rod went through his head. Yeah. And he didn't die from a bleed out, he didn't die from an infection. Um, and the only thing that really changed about him was his personality. Mm -hmm. um, and that was weird because this was the first time some of these intangible qualities started to have an area you could start to point to in the brain. But what I mean is that that rod flying through his head doesn't obey boundaries or landmarks or regions of the brain, right? I think like different parts of different connections in the brain were damaged and destroyed. And then it produced this phenomenon of this person having uh, compulsions and anger issues and... Um, I think, uh, so if someone has damage to parts of the brain, there's plenty of case studies where they maybe no longer see enjoyment and, you know, feel enjoyment or pleasure in certain things. Or they might have compuls compulsive eating behaviors or strong sexual drives. Um, <clears throat> so what was your original question? So if people are having, people have brain damage to different parts of the brain, your question was... Oh, wait, was will they not seek out things, well, basically, would somebody, maybe this is extreme, but starve to death because they're not, because everyone eats, like, there are people that say, oh, I eat because it's pleasurable, or I eat because I have to, Yeah. but it's still, I imagine, eat, the act of eating is, is 
programmed to feel good or, or else we wouldn't have survived yeah. this long. I think it's uh, even that's a very complicated process. And I think there's plenty of people uh, at the University of Minnesota and elsewhere studying feeding behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, that's a behavior that uh, seems maybe simple from the outside, but I think it's a very complicated process that goes into it. Sure. Um, if it's driven up by lack of nutrition that's coming from your gut, and those signals tell you that you're hungry and want to eat. And at some point, that has to make its way to these parts of the brain that motivate you to pick up the food and eat. Okay, um, so that, that begs another question for me. I, I'm going to, I probably have like, I have billions of questions. So, I think uh, just with all, the, with all these questions or everything with the brain, I think the whole, the goal, which maybe everyone's not necessarily thinking about, is your brain's a complicated computer. Yeah. Or it's processing information a hundred different ways in parallel with each other or in series and information's flowing from one part of the brain to the other and it's splitting and then this part of the brain's processing it while this other part of the brain is processing it and they convert. It's just, I think <clears throat> there's no one part of the brain that's a center for something. There's no one part of the brain that is uh, the left hemisphere, right hemisphere. I think it's it's this dynamic, you know, insanely complicated highway of information coming and going. And if you damage parts of the brain, certainly certain areas of the brain are bottlenecks where a bunch of connections all funnel through are mm-hmm. critical, more critical for certain behaviors than other behaviors. But I think just think about all the different ways that information can break down along the way and it might produce the same looking dysfunction or different variants of that dysfunction very differently. Um, so you, you had a bunch of questions or... Oh, yeah. Um, one of the, well, when you said the gut is telling your, your brain and I understand that your body tells like pain and all that stuff, but... Isn't it all still coming from the brain? I guess I'm confused about that. Is it really your stomach talking, or is it your brain going, oh, something's wrong in the stomach, and then... I mean, there's a back-and-forth, two-direction highway of information that basically communicates the state of your body with your brain and vice versa. Um, so there there are ways that your, your gut senses nutrition mm. or how full your stomach is, um, okay. and those those signals can get released through neurons that communicate with your brain. Um, or through hormones that are secreted in your bloodstream okay. that kind of release a hunger signal that originally stems from the state of your, your GI down there. Okay, so right? it is in tandem. It's not like this is the... Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, every which way the central nervous system can be more and more complicated, it probably will be. Yeah. Um, it's this kind of bottom-up information, and it kind of meets with this top-down information, and both are capable of interacting with each other. Um, this is true for, I mean, there's a lot of people that study, um, just people that study infectious diseases and microbiology, the state of your entire GI system and the bacteria that you have, that's part of you that's in there is communicating with your central nervous system and vice versa. I think this, this gut brain axis is this whole line of research that again, a lot of people are interested in studying. Do you, have you seen your, have you seen, not your, your personal brain, but have you already started working in human brain, like cadaverous or, or even patients? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in medical school, we certainly work with cadavers to understand how the entire body anatomy. What was um, that like the first time you saw a, a brain? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, um, I mean, you first, it's just, it's awe-inspiring because these are people who donated their body to science and you're sure. getting a glimpse of, um, how this tiny little thing that's just a couple of pounds um, is just this insanely magical, mysterious black box that is processing information and it generates who we are and it generates all of our behaviors and thoughts and feelings. Um, and it's this little thing that you can hold in your hand. <clears throat> and um, 
even now in the hospital where we're working with patients that are um, there's someone there's someone's grandpa or uncle um, and, and they're alive and awake in the operating room but their brains open on the other side while little devices and wires are being implanted into them I think it just it I don't know if there's any other field that I would want to go into because I think it's it's everything that our whole world is. It's all our all of our thoughts and feelings and emotions. It's all of these things that um, are intangible. It's our perception of reality, and I think now we're just starting to dive in and realizing that we can push and pull at these different parts of the brain, and it's distorting everything that we know to be real. Um, I think that's just it's it's insane that we can gain access to that now. So now when I'm in the operating room with the neurologists or the brain surgeons that are my mentors and we and we gain access to some of this stuff um i think it just kind of puts everything into perspective just how fragile everything can be or how resilient everything can be and um i don't know it's uh it's sometimes tough to put into words um i think being in this combined program where um i guess the whole goal of my career is to be able to see patients even if it's maybe once a week or once a month while spending the rest of my career trying to figure out more about what the hell is going on um it's a good fit for me i don't think i could be just in the hospital seeing patients um and not thinking about science or just in the laboratory trying to make discoveries but not trying to make it happen in the patients that i'm trying to take care of yeah it's a good fit for the two will you explain Uh, to i i know the reason why but explain to the listeners um why it is that your brain surgery patients are awake during yeah, so um, it, it it all depends on um, the procedure uh, that you're working on. So um, the the neurologist I work with that studies movement disorders, um, right? He studies he studies tremors, and he spends most of his time doing these experiments in monkeys mm-hmm. in his laboratory, mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out ways to actually go into the brain of a monkey and restore these tremors that might be happening in them. And then he gets to do that in patients, and he works in collaboration with a neurosurgeon. So um, just like you would do uh, any kind of surgery, whether it's in a patient or an animal, the surgeon, who's the expert in making sure that everything goes as smoothly as possible without any complications, can open up parts of the brain so that Dr. Vitek and others like him can lower these devices into the brain, these little wires. And then they they wake the patient up during this because if they want to see if where they're placing this device is actually helping these tremors or these movement disorders. They want the patient awake and moving, still anesthetized so that they don't feel anything from the surgery head up, but you still have the patient in control of their movements so that in the operating room you can see them, their tremors go away once you start stimulating these parts of the brain. And if you're not quite there, maybe you need to move the device a little bit up or down or change the parameters. Um, So this is, I mean, you can Google this, right? Deep brain stimulation. Um, I think there's plenty of videos of the first time this was done with a lot of mass media attention. Um, the violin guy. The violinist, right? Yeah. Who, whose whole career was his yeah. music, right? Um, and they basically brought a violin into the operating room and they had him play. And once he started stimulating the device, his hand could steady. And everyone, you know, the patient's awake. They, it's, very, it's a highly emotional event. The surgeon then kind of closes up and um, seals everything off. And the device is now permanently in the patient's head. And unless they need to get it removed for some reason down the road. Um, but we've seen that in the operating room where we've worked with patients. Um, you know, there's one patient I saw who was an artist, and if you gave him a pen, you know, he could barely hold the pen or it would basically go flying off the operating table. And then after this procedure, he could draw just a simple drawing that we had him draw a second ago that he couldn't do. That's incredible. 
And this is just for movement disorders. I mean, it but chokes me up a little bit just thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, you can look up. You can look up uh, on the internet Helen Mayberg's work. She visited the University of Minnesota last year, but the exact same thing. The patient's awake, but because she's an expert in depression, she has the patient reporting her mood every ten minutes as they're going into the brain and stimulating parts of the brain. And it's just yeah. remarkable that you can see the patient smiling and laughing, and she's never had done that for the last ten years or so. It's incredible. Um, there's some things you can listen to the brain and follow these biomarkers to figure out if you're doing the right thing, just like you would pull blood samples from someone if you're following this treatment's uh, efficacy against an infection. But you can't really do that for some of these things unless the patient's acting them out or reporting these feelings to you, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of, that's the way, that's the best kind of um, raw, raw, like, diagnostic we have is let's see the patient's motor function while we're doing our manipulation or let's see them report their their mood while yeah, we're doing I mean, it's, that research I mean, is and it's it's so maybe we're not there yet maybe that's the only tools we have where um like i said with with depression you have them fill out a survey or they they see if they meet these boxes so in the operating room i mean it's just like you're having them fill out the survey every 10 minutes mm -hmm. because that's our only really close measurement of this until we have a biomarker in the brain or a brain scan that we can follow where the patient can be asleep during this whole thing but there's something about this signal that is definitely reporting the mood of the patient and I don't think we're there yet right yeah. it's fascinating so okay Anna given your work and what you're striving toward does it, does it make it more complicated or easier to navigate the world at large for you personally because I mean like if somebody is you know makes you feel good are you able to go like oh yeah that feels good or you know, does it does it compromise your existence in the world knowing what you know about how the brain works uh i mean you know sometimes like if i'm trying to decide what to get for lunch and i'm deliberating about it <laughs> and then i sometimes you know it's like these are the same decisions my mice are making in the laboratory where they're deliberating about things like we, we joke about it but um i don't think any of this discredits or cheapens the way the brain you know like if we're trying to really boil it down to the nuts and bolts i don't think we're reducing the brain to anything less if um, that's part of what you're getting at right no I, uh, I mean does it does it make you pause and go okay am i really feeling this or is this my brain playing you, you know like things yeah of course um i think like everyone thinks about that and i think once we get into the brain and we you know we spend our careers diving into science full time um it definitely like creeps its way into our thoughts about all of our actions and thoughts that we make but because so much of it is not necessarily you know right on hand in our conscious mind there's so much about this, about our actions and our behaviors that happen in the background while we're not even thinking about it. Um, I mean, decision-making is a good example because thinking and reasoning through what you want or, you know, what you're going to do with your life or your day um, is just one aspect of the way we were motivated to do things. I think there's so many things that are happening, um, so many things happening under the hood that we're not thinking about um, that it's hard to actually just appreciate and, and reflect on all the time. Um, it's fun to think about though. Yeah, absolutely. Have you read up, I'm sure you have, silly question, but um, the Elon Musk with the brain webbing thing that he's working on? Uh, yeah, tell me more about... Um, well, from my understanding, he's developed some, or he is developing something that would be implanted in the brain to help it function at its highest capacity, and it's some sort of a webbing that would be a permanent structure. Again, <clears throat> sounds like science fiction, but when you have, when you're Elon Musk, I suppose there are no limits. Yeah, um, 
like I said, I think we're we're just starting to scratch the surface of this, which is which is why this field is so exciting to me. I think it's yeah. exploding and it's accelerating in a, in a rate that's unprecedented from any field. Um, I think we're just starting to understand, you know, some of these fundamentals of how the brain really works. So I don't think we're we're anywhere near. I mean, who's to say knowing what optimal functioning really is? Right? I think, it's, and this often comes up in our in our uh, discussions in in our laboratories about decision making and what is the most optimal decision, or how does how does an individual make the best decision? I think that's <clears throat> does that even exist? Right? What what is an optimal functioning? brain look like or what kind of behaviors does that look like i don't know if that's i don't know if we can say that quite yet um i think what being in this field for um in kind of the stuff i'm going into has at least taught me is we're starting to realize that this is way more complicated than we could ever imagine and i think we we're figuring out how to think about and talk about the brain in a way that aligns with how it really works mm -hmm. but um i think we definitely at least personally i can <clears throat> Be more careful with how I talk about the brain. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, uh, we don't really know um, exactly how it functions, so I think I'm becoming more and more careful with the language we use to describe it. Right. Yeah. What do you think about um, personally or scientifically? Um, I read an article once that that talked about when somebody is getting surgery and people pray for the person. And the mm. brain, maybe they don't know, or maybe they do know, and it's still, it's, it seems to do more in the healing process than those who aren't. Or even talking to them, or being bedside with them. Yeah, well, <clears throat> right, so you, an unconscious person is still somehow hearing what is being said, right? That we, we know that now. Yeah, um, right, and the, I think the question is, to what level is that being processed by them? Mm -hmm. um, we certainly know that there, there are individuals, I think they call it locked-in syndrome, where basically they're paralyzed, but they're fully there, right? Mm -hmm. I think they just, they don't have a way to communicate to us. Um, but that's not to say that you can't put them in high spirits or change their mood. Mm -hmm. And, and as, because of my early research and stress, that's what I used to do before all this work on addiction. Um, everything from coping mechanisms to resiliency to people who know how to cope with stress versus those that get PTSD or not even that extreme, but people who will now, um, react differently to an insult or a challenge or recovery, right? I think stress is, being in that field uh, early on in my training as a scientist, uh, I think has gotten me to appreciate that all these little things can definitely change your outcome or the way that you, you battle or recover against something. Um, so changing someone's mental state or emotional state, um, I think can carry a lot of power that we don't necessarily appreciate. So whether that means talking to someone who's recovering in a coma um, and whether or not they can fully appreciate you but can't communicate back, or partially, if they can at least hear sounds or feel feel warmth or not feel alone. Um, a, it certainly can't hurt anything, right? This is someone you may or may not be, you, you know, a loved one of yours. Um, and I think um, <clears throat> we don't really know what's going on in the mind of that person. Yeah. If they're recovering from surgery or some sort of treatment or they're um, on a ventilator or whatever like that. Um, I don't think we necessarily know how that interaction with them is fully being appreciated. And it, you know, could very well change just a right, the right amount of little things to um, <clears throat> change the way the body's reacting to stress, which is a huge component of the recovery process. Does PTSD um, some... chemically change the brain? Or is it a, a functionality of a moment in that it can be un... 
done. Oh man, uh, what's the difference, right? Well, <laughs> what's I mean, the... true, but I'm curious. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, this is again like this is this is how all of science works. It's whoever trains you or whoever is your your mentor in the field. They're kind of like your parents, and they they sculpt your view of science. Mm-hmm. So I have um, people that raised me back in Chicago that trained me to understand how the brain reasons mm-hmm. and how stress impacts the body and brain. Mm-hmm. Um, these are my old advisors, uh, Robert Morrison and Louis Lucas at Loyola in Chicago. And then now my current advisors, David Reddish and Mark Thomas, they study addiction and decision making. But if you kind of go backwards up in time, their mentors train them with the certain tools of their time to understand how they want to study the field. Um, so, so what was your last question that you just said? Because I think this like uh, I was just I was curious about <clears throat> something like PTSD. It, it, well, because for example, in my brain I'm thinking, okay, so if my grandfather did heroin, let's say, and then he marries my grandmother, and let's say she was a cokehead, <laughs> they got married and they had a kid, and yeah. the likelihood of that child being an addictive personality because their DNA now is imprinted with this, right? Now, if they yeah. never touched the drug ever would yeah, so, that's be- why, so that's why I brought up the the lineage of the people that I worked with because um, a lot of these researchers kind of they come from uh, a group of people that originally studied memory right mm-hmm. um, or experiences and I think it goes back to this whole nature versus nurture idea right genes versus experiences you go through um, and I think uh, <clears throat> being in the stress field back in Chicago and then working with someone who studies addiction now, but if you follow back the lineage of scientists he came from, these were all people that were known for their research on memory and experiences. And what is it about experiences that you go through that leave an imprint on on your body and brain? Um, And I think that carries a lot of weight. So whether it's how you were raised or the families that you came from, um, every little thing that you go through leaves an imprint or a mark on your body or brain, whether it's trivial or whether it's impactful. Um, This could be in a number of different ways. It could be changing the way your brain's wired, and that is what a memory is in its kind of simplest form. It's any experience you go through that changes how your brain functions functions the next time around. And that has, you know, what you had for breakfast this morning is a physical change somewhere in your brain where that memory is stored. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be your ability to recall that experience of having breakfast this morning, or that might be changing the way you encounter something down the road um, where your mood or your disposition to come off to something has now changed given your prior history, right? Um, or that could also mean that experiences you go through might be changing the way your DNA or your genes work, right? This is this whole field of epigenetics. It's where this whole nature and nurture mm-hmm. um, kind of two-sided story come together, where experiences you go through change the way your genes work, mm-hmm. right? And then how that actually can influence your offspring. So if you're two, if you have two military personnel who fall in love and get married, and they both are dealing with PTSD, and they have a child, will that child's genetic makeup be predisposed to PTSD, or will it somehow be already living in the body because it's coming from? It yeah. like, blows my brain just to think it, about it. It's so crazy. It's super complicated. I think that's the common theme to all of your questions: is uh, all of these things interact with each other. Yeah. Uh, the, the genetic makeup or how, you know, the genes might not be any different of the offspring, but when the child is in development or born, the way these genes are allowed to express themselves also can be changed as a function of parental influence and parental experiences. Um, 
And it's uh, and again, science is just evolving now, where we have the tools to be able to go in and, and manipulate that and ask questions about how does this really work, right? I think um, there's a lot of you know being in the stress field again. There's a lot of people that study the stressors a pregnant mother goes through, either during their lifetime or while uh, during term, that influences the susceptibility of the offspring and even that offspring's offspring, right? Um, and this um, this can talk about the genetics of things, or it can talk about how Genetic interacts with environment, which is, this, again, this field of epigenetics. Um, <clears throat> and then there on after, it's the trajectory of that child and all the experiences they go through during development um, could also be adding another whole factor on top of everything that is, that is changing their predisposition. It's so fascinating. To, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's really, really messy and really complicated. Um, so, I mean, even earlier in this conversation, we talked about people who are predisposed to addiction or people who have addictive personalities or whatever that might mean. Um, I think that's, that's a product of a bunch of things, whether it's um, their parents, whether it's what happened during development as they're being raised, all these stressors and experiences, they all add up to kind of have people have certain inclinations or heightened risks for different psychiatric disorders. Um, but man, there's no one single answer to this, right? Mm -hmm. No, the brain is complicated, supercomputer. <laughs> one last question, because you have been so wonderful, and, and I know I'm, I'm keeping you kind of long, but I could probably yeah. talk to you for five days in a row and just be like, oh my God, tell me more. But um, why, what, for what moment did you say, this is it, this is what turns me on so much, and then why addiction specifically for you? Yeah, um... I think we, we chatted a little bit about just, uh, I guess, the way that, I don't know, the, the simplest answer is when I'm in the hospital with a patient and their family, um, and I'm, I'm still in training, um, but uh, I'll oftentimes go into the, the operating room or into the, the patient's bed area, um, and I'll come in with a doctor, and they'll introduce me to the family is, is Brian, he's a medical student, he's an MD-PhD student. Um, he's also working on trying to figure out more about your disease, or he's trying to learn more about how to cure what's going on, because we don't really know what's going on. And oftentimes you meet these families or these patients that kind of hit a dead end, um, and they don't really know what's going on, or they don't know what else medicine can do for them. Um, <clears throat> and it's oftentimes it's the patient's family that are the ones that are researching what is the latest about this disease? What are the clinical trials? What are the experiments going on, even if they're in rats and mice? And they're the ones that are most, I think, on top of trying to understand more, more than the patient often. Yeah. And so I swear, it's, it's like the stupidest, quickest way to put a lump in my throat. When I'm introduced to these families, I don't really know them, they don't know me, but the way they come off, how grateful they are for someone that's trying to understand more about their loved one's disorder, mm -hmm. I think that is priceless more than anything. Right, it's um, there's something different about trying to be part of the healthcare team, trying to help someone out, but really you're you're devoting most of your career into the science about understanding what more can we do for you, and if we don't know what else we can do, let's try and figure this thing out. Right, um, there's something about that that is a good fit for me, where if I was seeing patients as my entire career, or if I was doing science as my entire career, um, I don't know if I'd be as excited or as happy as I am right now. Um, being in between both of these worlds because there's there's a disconnect there um, I, I love all of my medical colleagues and all my research colleagues, but um, I think sometimes you don't get the full picture right. um, Unless you're uh, 
kind of straddling both of these worlds. Um, and so that, I don't think you could, this is a question for every MD, PhD student that wants to, or, or pre-med student that wants to go in this combined program. It's one of the toughest questions to answer even in an interview. Like why the dual degree, why both fields? Um, it's the toughest question to answer, but you do your best when you're on the interview trail. But it's the clearest answer once you're in this field and you're learning about medicine as a scientist and you're learning about science as a future physician. Um, I don't think there's uh, there's anything that replaces it. It's a good fit for me. Yeah. Well, Brian, I think you're lovely and obviously compassionate, which is exciting to know that there's going to be you out there in the world doing your doing your work. Thank you so much. This is all. Yeah. No incredibly fascinating you know i'm glad that you invited me to talk i'm always happy to talk about this um even down the road or as yeah i'd love to have you back on for sure yeah, yeah. no uh, anytime i swear i love this stuff um i'm always happy to to share at least the way that i'm being uh raised in this in this field that's great thank you yeah. so much absolutely have a wonderful day thank you you too bye <laughs>